This is Law in the Time of COVID-19. I'm Adam Goldenberg. What happens if COVID-19 spreads to the very top of the Canadian government? If the Prime Minister were to become too sick to carry out his responsibilities, who would take over? And on what authority? U.S. President Donald Trump spent days in hospital after becoming infected. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson was in intensive care. The presidents of Brazil and France have each tested positive. And the Prime Minister of Eswatini, formerly Swaziland, has died with COVID-19. What would happen in Canada? I'll speak to two experts who have worked at the most senior levels of our civil service about how Canadians would ensure the continuity of constitutional government during a deadly pandemic. Law in the Time of COVID-19 explores the law and policy of pandemic response. We're looking at how governments, organizations, and individuals are managing the impact and meeting the moment. And because it wouldn't be a law firm podcast without a disclaimer, here's a disclaimer. McCarthy Tatro is providing this podcast as a public service, if we may say so ourselves. It may contain legal information, but it does not contain legal advice or a legal opinion, recommendation, or statement of policy of McCarthy Tatro. Here's our episode, The Crown Must Win. It took my husband and I all of about three days to make it through season four of the Netflix series, The Crown. We're now working our way through season three, not because we're binging backwards, but because we went back to the beginning and are re-watching the whole thing, start to finish. I've been doing research, you see. Constitutional law is one of my areas of practice, and The Crown is full of constitutional law. Take season one, episode two, for example, Hyde Park Corner. I don't think I'm spoiling anything by giving this away, but King George VI dies, and his daughter, Elizabeth, becomes queen. I'll spare you most of the details in case you haven't yet watched the episode and still plan to, but it's an historical fact that the Princess Elizabeth and Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, were in Kenya on a Commonwealth tour when the king died. It takes the government and the princess's various functionaries a good chunk of the episode to bring her the news. This was 1952, after all. Here's the constitutional law bit. By the time she was told of her father's death, the Duchess of Edinburgh had already become queen. Without even knowing it, she had succeeded to the throne. She became Queen of Canada in that same moment, in the very instant that George VI died. The king is dead, the saying goes. Long live the queen. That's the rule of succession for our head of state. But the same rule does not apply to our head of government, the prime minister. No Canadian prime minister has died in office since December 12, 1894. That's when 49-year-old Sir John Thompson suffered a fatal heart attack while at Windsor Castle, where Queen Elizabeth's great-great-grandmother, Queen Victoria, had just made Sir John a member of her Privy Council. It took more than a week for Sir John's successor, Sir Mackenzie Bowell, to take office as Prime Minister. He did so at the invitation of the Governor-General, whose constitutional responsibility it is effectively to choose the Prime Minister, usually after an election, but also any time the office becomes vacant for any reason. 
When the Governor-General, the Earl of Aberdeen, asked Sir Mackenzie to form a government in 1894, he could look to recent history for a precedent. Just three years earlier, another Sir John had died in office, Sir John A. Macdonald, Canada's first Prime Minister. And while we're on the subject, the Governor-General who had to identify a successor to Sir John A. was Lord Stanley of Preston, who I'm pretty sure is the only Governor-General to have made it into the Hockey Hall of Fame. But I digress. The bottom line is that we know what's supposed to happen if a prime minister dies in office. The rest of the cabinet remains in their jobs, while the governor general consults leading members of the governing party and then asks someone else to sit at the head of the table. That person becomes the new prime minister, appoints a new cabinet, and as long as they enjoy the confidence of the House of Commons, carries on governing. What's less clear, as a constitutional matter, is what happens if a prime minister becomes incapacitated while in office, but doesn't die. The Federal Emergency Management Act entrusts the Minister of Public Safety and Emergency Preparedness with making the necessary arrangements to ensure the continuity of government in a crisis. But Parliament has never enacted legislation prescribing an order of succession to the prime minister's office, something like the Presidential Succession Act in the United States, or the 25th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Instead, what we have are conventions, unwritten rules of constitutional government. The rules I just described about what happens when a prime minister dies? Those are conventions. Other conventions prescribe what would happen if a prime minister became too sick to carry out their responsibilities, if they contracted COVID-19, for example. It's an awful hypothetical, but it's not so far-fetched. As I said at the start of the episode, President Trump, President Bolsonaro of Brazil, President Macron of France, and Prime Minister Johnson of the United Kingdom have each been infected since the pandemic began. And as you may recall, all those years ago, in March 2020, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's wife tested positive for the coronavirus too, after returning from a trip to the UK. A day after that was announced, and the Prime Minister began self-isolating, the Federal Cabinet approved an order in Council, PC 2020-0152. It prescribes, by regulation, the order of the Ministers who are to assume the Prime Minister's duties, quote, in the event that the Prime Minister is unable to perform the functions of his office, end quote. At the top of the list is Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland. But what does it mean for the Prime Minister to be unable to perform the functions of his office? When do we know that he's gotten sick enough for his deputy to step in? Who makes that decision, and how? None of that is written down in the Order in Council or anywhere else. It would be a matter of, you guessed it, convention. To help us understand the unwritten constitutional rules of government continuity and how the cabinet, the federal public service, and the governor general would keep the wheels turning if the worst were to happen, I'm joined by two people who have been in the room where our country's most serious contingency plans are made, the Honorable Wayne Waters and Dick Fadden. Wayne is a strategic and policy advisor at McCarthy Tatro. But before that, from 2009 to 2014, he was Clerk of the Privy Council and Secretary to the Cabinet, the most senior public servant in the Government of Canada. 
Dick Fadden is a senior advisor at Capitol Hill Group in Ottawa and was director of the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, or CSIS, from 2009 to 2013, then Deputy Minister of National Defense from 2013 to 2015, and finally National Security Advisor to the Prime Minister from 2015 to 2016. We spoke on Thursday, December 17th. Dick, Wayne, thank you both for joining me. Good to be with you. Yeah, it's great to be uh, with you, and it's good, to, uh, it's good to talk to you again, Dick. It's been a while. It has. It has. I'm, ha- I'm happy to have brought the two of you back together uh, for this conversation. And, and Dick, let me let me start with you. In normal times, in the absence of a crisis like COVID-19, for example, whose responsibility is it within the federal government? And I, I'm assuming that it's someone within the Privy Council office to be concerned about continuity of government and contingency planning in the event that there is a continuity of government issue that arises. Well, there are, there are two large groups who worry about this. I mean, the, the person who worries most about it are people like Wayne, the clerk of the Privy Council has overall responsibility. But in the sense of you know, continuity in a constitutional sense, it's the section that is, deals with machinery of government, which is headed by a deputy secretary to the cabinet. On the other side of things, there's the National Security Advisor's shop, which worries about things more physical, whether or not anything is required to be done in a kinetic sort of sense. But it's basically these two sections reporting up through the clerk of the Privy Council. And, and what do you mean by in a kinetic sense? What, what sorts of well, things? If something has to be done. I mean, if, for example, the crisis is not COVID, but a major natural disaster, would the government of Canada have to be moved to another place? Would the Privy Council office have to move out of its offices uh, where it is today? That group would worry more about that. Machinery of government would think about the constitutional and the legal aspects of things. So, Wayne, when you were the clerk... And, and, and Dick, Dick uh, actually, um, when you look at his career, he actually spent time in, in both of those areas. He, he was... Uh, he was in machinery of government for a period of time, and he was also uh, the prime minister's national security advisor for a period of time. So, Dick, you've had to think about this uh, at different times in your career. No, that's right. And it, and it has come up more directly on a couple of occasions. Uh, now, yeah. there are obviously limits on what on what you'll be able to tell us, but but in broad terms, what sorts of situations prompt these conversations at the at the Privy Council level, thinking about the kinds of contingency plans that the government might need? Well, I think it varies over time, but for, for a while when I was there, and I think Wayne as well, we worried about terrorist attacks. I mean, there have been some really terrible terrorist attacks in other capitals, in the G7 countries and in NATO. So we worried about what would happen if the Prime Minister, the Governor General, or somebody else were endangered in that sense. We always worry about really major natural disasters. Uh, I think pandemics, although less so until quite recently, to be honest. And I think increasingly these days about cyber attacks, because I think it's beyond reasonable debate right now that if another country wanted to really cut our critical infrastructure, it would be possible to do. So it's really all or some of these in some mix or other that gives you pause and asks us to think about what do we do if something happens to the prime minister in particular, because as long as there's the prime minister and he or she's functioning, the ministry survives. If a particular minister is affected, it doesn't really affect the government at large. So our focus was the prime minister and to somewhat lesser extent, the governor general. 
Now, Wayne, when you became the clerk of the Privy Council, we've got all three pieces here. We've got Dick, who's got the experience in machinery of government and is the national security advisor. And, and Wayne, you were the clerk. When you came into that job, was there like a list of possible nightmare scenarios that you needed to have in mind that might arise in the course of your time and with the the, the pre-baked playbook, if you, if any such a, a, a event were to occur? Or or did you come into this with with more of a fresh starting point when you came into that job? No, I think uh, I came in. Um, this is this is an ongoing uh, contingency planning exercise. That of course, as clerk, then you you have overall uh, responsibility for. And as I, said, I think, as Dick said, it's contingency for many different events. And um, during my period, of course, it was it was post nine eleven. It clearly was concerned about. Uh, possible terrorist attack, but also any natural uh, disaster, like if a major earthquake took place in the nation's capital, uh, how do we ensure the continuity of, of government? So, no, I think uh, it evol- it, this has evolved over time. Contingency planning is done for different reasons. And technology, of course, as Dick has alluded to, has has increased the, uh, the number of potential risk of the events that we uh, we needed to we needed to to consider let me make this a little bit more specific and and not thinking about what might bring this about but but dick you mentioned that the prime minister really is the most important piece of this because the ministry survives as long as the prime minister is alive and and i take it what you mean is that when the prime minister dies the entire ministry needs to be reappointed first the governor general needs to ask someone else to form a government and then that individual needs to appoint a new cabinet or even if they appoint all the same ministers it's a new ministry because there's a new prime minister in that situation in the period it will take some time for the governor general to take soundings and identify the individual whom they will ask to form a government who runs the government of canada in that moment particularly if there's a national crisis on the go that's a really good question so let me back up just a little bit and and make a a general point Um, i think if i remember correctly the prime minister is mentioned in three federal statutes the salaries act the residents at 24 sussex and there's one other all other pieces of federal legislation have a responsible minister And as long as the ministry survives and the governor general hasn't appointed a new prime minister, all of these ministers, until there's a new appointment, continue to exercise all of their powers, both under the legislation and under the regulations. So if absent a major, major crisis, government continues to turn. The the cabinet, which is a political, as you know, not a legal instrument, can continue to meet under the senior privy councillor, under the deputy prime minister, and can make decisions. But if it becomes clear that the prime minister is, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, gone for one reason or the other, then something close to the caretaker convention takes place and absent having to deal with an emergency, government sort of just chugs along with the help of the public service while the governor general seeks to identify who will become the new prime minister. But I think sometimes we underestimate what does happen in government generally without the prime minister laying on hands. I mean, the legislation in Canada mentions ministers, not the prime minister. And ministers also retain the capacity to recommend orders in council. So there's a fair bit of flexibility 
Now that would change a little bit if there's a major catastrophe and you don't have a prime minister. I would assume that the minister principally responsible for catastrophes, usually it's the minister of public safety, would take a bit of the lead. People in Wayne's old position would also have a major role to play. And the governor general, I think, would really expedite identifying at least a caretaker prime minister, if not a full-time one. Now, as well, you know, under, uh, I think when, um, when the prime minister's wife uh, became sick with COVID, there was a, uh, an announcement about the government passing an order in council uh, appointing, uh, uh, which would uh, refer to who would stand in if, in fact, the prime minister became sick. It is general. This is this is convention um, that when each cabinet is appointed, essentially that o- OIC has, of course, the the prime minister and all the cabinet ministers that the prime minister has decided to appoint. But it also will include in that OIC uh, up to two alternatives in the event that a particular minister and and including the prime minister is incapacitated for whatever reason. So those OICs normally, uh, now a government can decide not to have one of those, but in my time in government and my time when I passed through PCO, including the clerk, the prime minister always ensured that there would be a minister appointed but an alternative in the event of uh, of that situation of one minister becoming sick and it's been there's been many cases where in fact ministers not necessarily the prime minister but where ministers have become sick and have not been able to perform their duties and uh, an alternative is appointed but that has already been considered as part of the cabinet making exercise right if if there and were if, and if and if the cabinet, if the prime minister did not do that, and I'm with Wayne for as long as I've served way there, there's always has been one. What right. they fall back on is the order of precedence in the Privy Council, who happens to be in the cabinet. So there's even a fallback from the order in council that Wayne mentioned. There's right. always a way somehow to find a principal advisor to the crown. So in, in the and, current and cabinet. And precedent for- is normally the first minister, the first, you know, the first time a yeah. minister is appointed. So, yes. um, right. So you anticipated my question, Wayne. So, so in the current cabinet, in the absence of the order in council to which you referred, Wayne, which came in on March the 13th and which designates Christian Freeland, the deputy prime minister, as the person right. who steps in for the prime minister if he's unable to discharge his responsibilities in office. The most senior member of the Privy Council in the cabinet is, I believe, Lawrence McCauley, uh, who was appointed by Jean Chrétien to the Privy Council in the Liberal government in the 1990s and is now back in cabinet under Prime Minister Trudeau. So regardless of which portfolio he holds, he's the next up in the absence of an order in council designating somebody else as the backup in the event the PM is unable to, to carry on, at least for a period of time. But but in the event that the prime minister, so there are two different scenarios, right? There's the scenario where the prime minister dies. And we haven't had a prime minister die in office in Canada in over a century. Last time was 1894. When that happens, the governor general needs to choose a new prime minister. And it's not like in the United States where anybody automatically takes the job. The, the governor general has to make a choice based on advice that she is given by members of the governing party, members of the cabinet. Uh, and presumably, even in the absence of an order in council, if someone holds the the portfolio of deputy prime minister, that would likely be the person that the GG would go to and ask to form a government. 
But in the alternative scenario where the prime minister isn't dead and there isn't that level of clarity about whether the prime minister can continue in his job, how do you decide whether or not a prime minister is incapable of carrying on in office? For example, say a prime minister were to get sick with a, with a virus, an infection like COVID-19, and he were to get progressively sicker, would there come a point at which the cabinet would be able to decide the PM hasn't said so, but the PM is no longer able to carry on in this job, and so the deputy prime minister is taking over now? Or does it have to be the prime minister that makes that decision? Or do we just not know? Is this a gray area where there aren't clear rules and uh, because we've never found ourselves there? I would argue that this is an area where convention and common sense comes to play. If the prime minister very clearly were not going to be able to come back, I think what would happen is a consensus would develop within cabinet. The governor general would be aware, probably talk to people like Wayne who are in the clerk's job and slowly but surely there would be a consensus to the effect that the governor general would have to act. One point I would make, though, is that deputy prime ministers do not have the right of succession. It's not like the vice president. They may well end up as a caretaker prime minister as prime minister, but it's the absolute prerogative of the governor general after taking soundings, often not just in cabinet, but also among senior members of the caucus. So there's a lot of, of um, I was going to say smoke and mirrors. I don't quite mean that, but there's precedent from the United Kingdom. There's precedence from what we're doing here. But in the end, the essential element is the governor general must absolutely have a first minister who retains the confidence, not of the cabinet, but of the House of Commons. And whatever needs to be done to get us to that point would get done. Yeah, Adam, I think I think it is the case. I mean, that is a gray area. I mean, it is a it's a hypothetical situation that, that in my life in government and, and any other um, situations I've examined that we haven't been in a situation where the prime minister has got uh, his illness uh, over time. He's, he becomes in a, in a worse and worse condition and, and has not necessarily said that he can no longer uh, serve in his capacity. Um, let me just say, when these things do start to happen, I mean, Far, we, we know the prime minister's ill. You know, th- this is looked at on a, on a daily basis, and there are those discussions. In this case, with the deputy prime minister, there'd be weekly discussions, and if, he, if he's still trying to maintain his position, but he's not, he's not uh, has the capacity. I think in the end, common sense does prevail. But what we would do, uh, the Privy Council office would be doing during this period looking at this situation is looking for convention elsewhere, either in the provincial governments or other Westminster systems where a prime minister is not ill and has got, you know, has become seriously ill and is still trying to maintain uh, his role and try and assess through those particular conventions or precedents what's happened before, how we should deal with this. So there are ways that we can try and manage these situations by looking at other examples, largely in the Commonwealth or even in our own country uh, in, within provincial legislatures. But generally, hopefully, common sense will prevail and the prime minister will take the necessary time to, to heal or whatever ever events can take place. 
So in that in scenario, right, right. So, so in that scenario, when you, you've been using the first person plural, we would do this, we would do that. Who is the we? Right. Is it is it the rest of the cabinet? Is it the governor general? Is it the the privy council office and the public service? Is it all of the above? Who who ultimately is the well? Let's make it more specific. Who ultimately is the PCO advising in that scenario where the prime minister is unable to to make decisions because he's incapacitated for some reason? Well. Well, remember, through convention or an OIC, there is a uh, an alternate alternate um, uh, deputy minister. Now, in this case, of course, the deputy minister, um, the, def- uh, the sorry, yeah, an, al- an alternate uh, uh, prime minister. Mm-hmm. In, in this in this case, uh, the the prime minister is still trying to serve. But uh, you know, you you would work with the deputy prime minister in this situation. Uh, the deputy prime minister has a certain role. So, as clerk, uh, if I was clerk, I would be having the with the deputy prime minister, uh, and through that, the deputy prime minister would have conversations with other other key ministers to to try and make a determination where they're at. The deputy prime minister could call a meeting of cabinet um, if the situation had got to, you know, has worsened to the point where my advice to her and her decision is that the prime minister can no longer serve as prime minister. And uh, and then cabinet would have that conversation about what the next steps would be. I, I think that's right. But I would just add that in the end, uh, the governor general would have to be involved. I mean, if the governor, I mean, sure. depending upon how proactive or not the governor general would be, uh, yeah. they would wait for the sort of development of, of the scenario that Wayne just sort of set out, or the secretary to the governor general or the governor general would be talking to Wayne and or the deputy prime minister. Because it seems to me anyway, there's if the governor general has one overarching responsibility it's to ensure that there's a functioning prime minister advising the crown. But I don't disagree at all with what Wayne is saying, but I'm just saying you cannot totally forget the governor general in this. And, and so who is, who is I guess the, the question, Dick? I guess the question, Dick, on that is, and again, this is a scenario we have not had an opportunity mm. to play out, as to when the governor general would have a role, basically her constitutional role, because she just definitely has one in the event of the prime minister were to die, but the prime minister here is still alive and has been serving. And I guess the question is, when does actually her role uh, take effect? Because he can actually, he could be, he could be leaving for a period of time and could be coming back into the, back into the system. Yeah. You so know, that's where he, I think your, get, your earlier comment comes again. into play. Common sense. Right. This right. works <laughs> if everybody uses common sense. Right, because right. presumably you need to have this sort of, I mean, in a very small sense, if the prime minister were to have surgery requiring general anesthesia, you would nonetheless yeah. need someone to be responsible in the prime minister's place for the number of hours that that he were out cold. And and even though yeah. you know he'd be back online that evening, if something happens, you've someone's got to be be there to take the advice of the of the clerk and and give direction to the government. But I, I've got a question though for for you about the governor general. Who who is 
Wayne, the principal advisor to the governor general in a real continuity crisis like the kind we're imagining here? Is it the clerk or is it the the secretary to the governor general? Does the governor general draw advice from whomever he or she sees fit? I'm thinking back to the prorogation issue in 2008, <laughs> when, when, as I recall, the, pri- the, the governor general called on constitutional law experts from outside <clears throat> government to to give uh, to give her, as it was at the time, uh, advice about how to to deal with the advice that was coming from the prime minister. Is there any formal setup for who is there to advise the GG in the event that that they do have to play an active role, as Dick says? Well, it really is a combination of uh, advisory roles. So, yes, the, prim- the Privy Council Office, through uh, the machinery of government uh, branch, uh, would be providing the governor general with advice. Uh, we'd want to make sure that the governor general was aware of what Privy Council's advice would be in the event that the, those circumstances would take place. However, as as the she or he she in this case uh, has the prerogative to seek other advice, outside advice from other experts, constitutional experts, and like. And and at the end of the day. The secretary to the governor general is, is her senior advisor, and ultimately she makes the, the final decision. So it, it is really a, a combination of, you had a situation where the prime minister is ill and, 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 and becoming uh, more seriously ill, then that dialogue and those conversations uh, would be taking place on a very regular basis. Not only with machinery of government, but with in my time as clerk, uh, you know, I'd be happy. I have I had regular conversations with the, the governor general, and I'd want to make sure that uh, he or she was aware of what my point of view was uh, in this in this particular case. I'm just I'm thinking of the the Netflix show The Crown. They they don't show the private audience between the Queen and the and the Cabinet Secretary, just the Queen and the and the Prime Minister. But but you're telling me when <laughs> at least in in our system the Crown's representative has direct contact with the with the senior member of the public service. Yes, and I, I in fact I I met with the uh the Governor General once a month um to brief him on government operations issues of the day. Now of course, I would always uh, confer with the prime minister and make sure he was comfortable as to what I was going to cover. But we would do that. And then then he would also reach out to from time to time. This was, uh, of course, uh, David Johnson was the governor at the time. He'd reach out. He'd always he'd always confer with me first, but he'd reach out to other deputy ministers if he was you know, particularly traveling abroad. Yeah, and he wanted to get more information. Um, so yeah, there's a fairly close working relationship between the governor general and his office and the public service. But you're right, you don't see that uh, when you right, watch The Crown. Uh, Richard, I want to go back to something <laughs> that you uh, that you mentioned earlier with respect to uh, to what would happen if the governor general were in a position to have to choose someone else to be the prime minister. This is not. I'm not now talking about the situation where the prime minister is incapacitated, and there's an order in council or the order of precedence that dictates who deputizes for the prime minister when he or she is is out of commission. I'm talking about a situation where we need a new prime minister. There's going to be a new ministry. 
that's not a situation where the new person would be a caretaker prime minister, right? That, that, that person would have all the powers and prerogatives of the office. So in that situation, how does someone go from being asked to take over as prime minister and forming a new ministry to cementing themselves in that position or, or establishing themselves with a mandate? Would there need to be an election? Would there need just to be a confidence vote in the House of Commons? What would the expectation of the public service be? Or does the public service simply say, you've got the job prime minister, you've been appointed by the governor general, asked to form a government. As far as we're concerned, you're the PM, so on we go until someone tells us otherwise. I think unless there was a constitutional impropriety that was fairly evident, the prime minute, the, the public service would take the governor general's decision. But in terms of installing him or herself as prime minister once being asked, there is, a, there is I think, a, a process before that. The governor general should not, um, at least under the convention, ask anybody to assume the office of prime minister unless there is a quite reasonable assurance that that person will have the support of his or her party. This is not just to be clear, the governor general, you know, deciding that uh, he or she likes the cut of somebody's jib to use an old naval expression and picking that person. To Wayne's point, there would be consultations with members of the cabinet, with the clerk, probably with senior caucus members. And the governor general would be pretty certain that her selection would be able to sustain a vote in the House of Commons. Is, it, is an election necessary? Absolutely not. Is a vote of confidence necessary? No, but probably over time, if you have a new prime minister, you wanna find an occasion to, to ensure that you have visibly the support of the House of Commons. But as Wayne was saying earlier, none of this is written down. You know, no. I mean, a new prime minister selected by the governor general could decide, I can't do this without an election. And then he would then advise that writs be issued and there'd be an election. But technically speaking, the GG picks somebody. If he or she has the confidence of the House, you can carry on. Does it make a difference in our current parliament where no no party has a majority of the seats in terms of who the governor general would speak to or, or solicit input from in asking someone to form a new ministry? I suspect it would. Uh, and I suspect it would give the governor general a small migraine. You would certainly go to the prime minister's party and you would want some sense, I think a general sense, not as detailed a sense, because the, the, the governor general traditionally does not deal on these matters with opposition parties, but a sense that the individual might be able to continue the practice of the previous prime minister to sustain votes in the House of Commons. But to, to Wayne's point, again, a lot of this would involve beneath the radar consultations, sometimes with the clerk, sometimes with the secretary, with other members of the cabinet, the practice in the United Kingdom for the longest time was for the, the, the queen to pick a former minister, a statesman from that party, and to have that individual do soundings with everybody. That's another possibility here. The only thing that's important, yeah. I think, is that the governor general has to have some assurance that the individual she picks can at least sustain one vote of confidence at some point. All right. Yeah, so at the so, end of the day, the end of the day, the government survives because of um, not, you know, not not losing a confidence vote in the in the house. Now, I mean, if she made if she made a, a very bad choice, I don't think the government necessarily wants to defeat itself, even in a minority situation. So, I think they would need to 
to work it out, even if they are, aren't fully comfortable in the choice, that uh, so long as they are governing and uh, uh, I guess at some point they, they could have a leadership um, convention and appoint a new leader for the party. But in the meantime, uh, they will need mm. to be comfortable if they're governing with the, the prime minister that has been appointed by the governor general. Yep. I now, mean, the I, cabinet's going to have to live with that. Right. I want to close by going back to something that both of you have mentioned, which is that none of this is written down anywhere, at least not in any law or in the Constitution. This is an area where ambiguity is both helpful and hurtful, potentially, because you, on the one hand, want flexibility and want to be able to respond to the particular circumstances that arise in a crisis. But on the other hand, you don't want uncertainty about who is responsible for making decisions that affect all Canadians in a, in a crisis scenario. So let me make it very practical. Each of you obviously knows what the what the precedents generally are and where you would look and what the steps would be. If this isn't written down anywhere, how do you both know all of this? Is there is there a briefing that you get when you become a very senior public servant? Is there secret knowledge? Are, are, are all future uh, national security advisors going to have to listen to this podcast? Like, what, what is the means of transmission of knowledge within the public service about these sorts of contingency planning uh, principles? We, we're all put, when we get appointed to the Privy Council office, we're all put in little, like little dark rooms and this is bombarded. <laughs> To us until we, we memorize it all. No, I I, I think uh, as you can see though, uh, I, you know I think Dick and I have some degree of knowledge of this. It shows that these kind of d discussions have taken place. You know, there's every circumstance is different. So when you say right, right, this is none of this is written down. Well, you know, uh, any any. Any time that there is, a, you know, you could have situations where, where uh, let's look at the United States. We have a government uh, that loses the election, but the prime minister decides that he still should govern and he is not going to step down. Well, in our instance, we have a governor general that can can take certain certain actions. But, uh, you know, I think we, we go by convention. We go by precedence. I mean, that's that serves our country well that's part of our westminster system but regardless of convention and precedent no situation is the same and it requires some hopefully good judgment and common sense to get get us through that and i think generally that taking that convention that precedent experience common sense um uh, Generally, I think it's served our country well, and we haven't had too many crises as we've seen, you know, a change of governments or, or whatever come along. But Dick, do you have a no? I think any that's views right. I on mean, that. I do. I mean, just I think you're entirely right. The only thing I would add is, are, are these written down in one place in a statute? No, they're not. But you know, machinery of government in the Privy Council office is paid on an ongoing basis to think about these yeah, things. Yeah. There are all sorts of scenarios that have been developed. There are a number of academics in Canada, really quite distinguished Canadians who know a lot about these things. And over time, you know, public servants and ministers acquire this as sort of crises or mini crises occur. So there are, there are stuff written down. It's just not binding. 
you know, it's the convention and you apply it as Wayne says, with as much good judgment as you can manage. Well, that reassures me greatly. Thank you both. This has been enlightening and I'm grateful to you both for your time. Thank you, Dick. Thank you, Wayne. My pleasure. Season's greetings to all of you and stay healthy. Wayne Waters is a strategic and policy advisor at McCarthy Tatro and a former clerk of the Privy Council and secretary to the cabinet. Dick Fadden is a senior advisor at Capitol Hill Group and a former national security advisor to the Prime Minister. Law in the Time of COVID-19 is produced by the incomparable Chloe Thomas. Our researcher for this episode was Carly Fraser. Carly has represented Alberta at the Canadian Championships of Highland Dance, and she's qualified for the Adult World Championship Finals. In her spare time, Carly is an articling student in our Calgary office. Special thanks to Lara Nathans, Trevor Lawson, Judith McKay, Elizabeth Burks, Ali Adams, Kat Cleon, and the entire team here at McCarthy Tatro. Not literally here, of course, but you know what I mean. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and tell your friends to do the same. You can also find lots more content on our firm's COVID-19 Recovery Hub, which you can reach from the main page of our website at www.mccarthy.ca. This is Law in the Time of COVID-19. I'm Adam Goldenberg. Thanks for listening, and please wash your hands.